New Orleans was one of the biggest slave ports in the country, you know? So we have all these, like, this racial legacy. We have this also um, history of uh, indigenous genocide, settler colonialism, and how these things really haven't ended if you think about the fact that, like, uh, the industry here is displacing mostly working class and BIPOC communities. It's not kind of, it is connected, right? The fact that our planet is heating and that these industries are emitting pollution and carbon emissions that are contributing to that and stronger storms that are going to forcibly turn more people into climate refugees. I'm Erin. I'm Diamond. And I'm Nora. And you are listening to Tilling the Soil, a Whitney Plantation podcast. In this season of Tilling the Soil, we will be exploring various conversations surrounding the environment. And today we begin a special two-episode series that follows me and my colleagues on the Louisiana Bucket Brigade's environmental racism tour. Our experience started in Norco, Louisiana, a town about 30 minutes east of New Orleans. As we prepared for our tour, we shared our initial thoughts. But I didn't really think about like the factories and stuff like that until you like mentioned it. And now that I'm thinking about it, it is kind of like a sore thumb. So the factories just become almost like a fixture of the landscape. Yeah, it kind of like blends into the background with everything else. I, I do see what you're saying there. Cause like I know that driving in other parts of Louisiana, the factories are just an aspect of the landscape and don't actually seem like anything more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, because I guess we we're driving down to like take this particular tour today, I was like, just very struck by how like the whole horizon was just the factory. Yeah. And I was also just reflecting on what Grace was saying, how she used to think that the factories made the clouds and just seeing like <laughs> those plumes of smoke going into like this like very cloudy day. Right. Um, and it, it, it was very, very interesting. What about you, Nora? I think I was, well, because my understanding from reading Diamond, and I mean, you can definitely correct me on this, but like, I thought Norco was more like the white community, and then Diamond is more like the black community. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, and so I guess I was really shocked driving in at like sort of this domestic, <laughs> this domestic bliss, like white picket fences, like mm-hmm. it looks very small towns like small town USA but then you look right right beyond the yeah like it's literally right there and I guess that's not something I typically associate with white communities like I don't think that white people want to live near there also driving in we that there's that Haydell furniture store yeah, I was no, gonna literally, mention that. and I so I was thinking about that and like who are the white people that live here but it's definitely jarring seeing like kids swing sets and mm-hmm. like you know I don't know, like it just looks like a a whole little cute suburb. Our tour was guided by a representative from Louisiana Bucket Brigade, an organization founded in 2000 with the mission of using grassroots action to hold heavy industry and government accountable for their impact on Louisiana communities sited next to oil refineries, chemical plants, and other petrochemical infrastructure. And then can you just like introduce yourself briefly? Sure. Um, My name is Sheila Tahir. Like I said, I'm the bike ride manager of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade. um, I'm a daughter of immigrants, but I was born and raised in New Orleans. And after I completed a degree in anthropology for grad school, I moved back home and I got this job, which is like a dream job because I wanted to um, work 
towards protecting my home and my state. And in terms of how we're kind of at the nexus of all these global flows of like extraction in terms of big oil and the petrochemical industry, um, as well as the fact that like New Orleans was one of the biggest slave ports in the country, you know, so we have all these like this racial legacy. We have this also um, history of uh, indigenous genocide, settler colonialism, and how these things really haven't ended if you think about the fact that like uh, the industry here is displacing mostly working class and BIPOC communities. It's not kind of, it is connected, right? The fact that our planet is heating and that these industries are emitting pollution and carbon emissions that are contributing to that and stronger storms that are going to forcibly turn more people into climate refugees. So can you tell us a little bit more about where we are right now? So we're in Norco. So we're in Norco. This is a pretty, I uh, say, standard town uh, in terms of like how towns are between Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Now, the region between Baton Rouge and New Orleans is pejoratively known as Cancer Alley because cancer rates are extremely elevated here amongst like a range of other health issues. So Norco is like a small town. Like I said, it's pretty standard in terms of like how it's sort of it's sandwiched between all these different impediments of the oil and gas industry. On one side, we're bounded by Shell Chemical. On the other, Shell Refinery. There's the Mississippi River in front of us, train tracks behind us. Both the, the train and the river serve to take whatever is being produced at these facilities to market, right? And Norco is a small town population, maybe a little bit under 3,000 post-Katrina that might have changed after Ida. And it is sadly uh, the because we have a history of segregation in this country, Norco is predominantly the white part of town. We're going to go later to the historic African-American community of Norco, which is known as Diamond. I want to acknowledge that Down by the River um, bike ride is based on other people's knowledge. In particular, there are two individuals who we always honor and recognize before we start the tour. The first was uh, Miss Margie Richard. She was a resident of Diamond. She was the first African-American lady to achieve the Goldman Environmental Justice Prize. She organized with her group called the Concerned Citizens of Norco, and she was the one who drew the parallel between the petrochemical industries of today and the plantations of yore. The second person is a man by the name of Mr. Leon Waters. Now, he is, in his own words, a black revolutionary. He is a um, educator, he's a historian, and a lot of the primary documents I'm gonna share with you and sites that I show involving the 1811 enslaved uprising, that's thanks to Mr. Leon Waters. We were also joined with a community partner from the Descendants Project, an organization that we previously spoke to in episode six of this season. Well, I am Joe Banner. I'm one of the co-founders and co-directors of the Descendants Project a nonprofit organization that I operate with my twin sister, Dr. Joy Banner. We started our organization to really focus on a descendant community, ways that we can preserve our history, engage in our history, and also protect the descendants, like ourselves, of the enslaved Africans. Okay, so we're gonna head over to Diamond. You can follow me in my car. I'm gonna go straight down this road, which is First Street, and we're gonna stop on an oak tree at the corner of First and Kathy. Uh, right in the heart of Diamond. Okay. So, at that, the three of us piled into my car to make our way over to Diamond, which turned out to be less than a mile away, just a few streets over. As we drove, we marked the decrease in the appearance of so-called domestic bliss and the increased appearance of empty lots. 
We parked along the side of the street and gathered under an oak tree at the corner of an empty lot that had clearly at one point been someone's home. Okay, well, I'm gonna jump into where we are. We're now in the community of Diamond and that road we just drove down uh, used to have a thick strand of oak trees. And this naturally demarcated the white part of town from the black part of town. And I'm using air quotes, which maybe you can't see if you're listening mm -hmm. to this, but I'm using air quotes because there was nothing natural about these oak trees being here, right? The United States has a really long history of racially biased land use planning. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that our country will oftentimes use different types of infrastructure to geographically isolate different neighborhoods from one another. Railroad and then they, tracks. Yeah, like railroad tracks, like oak trees, like high... Yes, like these highways, you know, these are all things that like urban planners use so that they can separate communities from one another and that's oftentimes on a racialized basis, right? Then you can very easily disinvest from a neighborhood. So that's, that. anyway, there used to be oak trees here that separated Diamond from the rest of Norco. We then turned our attention to a series of white metal tanks situated behind a chain-linked fence topped with barbed wire. Now, if you look there in the distance you can see shell chemical and you can see just how closely on the like literally on the fence line diamond is with shell chemical now where shell chemical stands today there was a plantation known as the trepenye plantation okay this was a small smaller plantation a lot of times when we think of how hollywood has depicted plantations we think they were always sprawling thousands of workers that wasn't the case, but this was a plantation, and that being said, even if it was smaller, there were enslaved laborers on this plantation. Now, the descendants of the owners of Trepenny Plantation, they sold that land to Shell Chemical in the 50s, uh, 1950s. That's when a lot of these industries moved into the region. And when that happened, there were folks who were living on that land who were forcibly displaced. And they were the descendants of the enslaved who used to labor on Trepenny Plantation. Now, let's, let's go back right to post the Civil War. Right after the Civil War, a lot of the individuals who had recently been liberated decided to stay near the plantation. And they formed this really beautiful historic community of Belltown. Systems of sharecropping arose after the Civil War systems of debt peonage. There were also laws that would prevent rural black folks from coming into cities. You know, so these are just different ways that, that labor was still stolen from racialized individuals. So despite this, like I don't want to take away the autonomy of the folks of Belltown, and a lot of them chose to remain near the former plantations they labored on because they had created really strong bonds with their community laboring on these plantations. So folks from the Trepenny Plantation formed the community of Belltown for numerous reasons, right? That being said, they were displaced when Shell Chemical moved in. Now, a lot of those individuals wanted to pass on something to their descendants. Even though their ancestors had labored on Trepenny Plantation, they had no official claim to that land. So they made sure they would buy multiple plots here in Diamond. So a lot of folks here bought several plots of land and again they wanted to remain with their family and their community and so they decided to stay very close to where Belltown used to be here in Diamond. Now there is a huge racial wealth gap in the United States 
And we know that a factor in that is because a lot of black individuals have had land dispossession occur and have had land theft occur and they were not able to pass on their ancestral land or homes and property to their children. So let's talk a little bit about this too. Shell Chemical moves in here into the uh, in the 50s. Residents of Diamond start to notice that people are sickening and dying in droves, okay? People are getting cancer. Women are having miscarriages. Rare diseases are starting to proliferate. For example, one of these diseases is known as sarcoidosis. It inflames the lung tissue. It's very, very rare. It's something like one in 1,000 people nationally get this. But here in Norco, there were at least five cases in 500 individuals. So it's a very stark statistic. Margie Richard's sister dies at the young age of 43 from sarcoidosis. Okay, so people, people know that they're getting sick because of these plants, right? They start drawing the dots. They're, they start seeing the connections. And a lot of individuals want to move out of here. Now, Shell was buying property piecemeal for years, you know, and they would cite fair market value for the low and depressed prices they would give for this property. They would say, you're living next to a plant, your land is contaminated, we can't give you that much. So again, you can see how like they created the very system that they then used to exclude people from like a fair, fair price. So folks in Diamond wanted to get a collective, like unfair buyout from Shell. And after years of protest and battles and numerous court cases, that day of bittersweet victory for the residents of Diamond came in June of 2002 and Shell agreed to a historic buyout. They gave different price for brick and mortar homes versus trailers. I think, again, that's ridiculous, but folks took the buyout if they wanted. There are still people who live here. I, I believe there's about nine families. There might be a little bit more or less after Ida. And uh, folks decided to remain here for a number of reasons. Again, some people, this is their ancestral land. They don't want to leave Diamond. They're really connected to this space. And some residents were elderly and, like again, didn't want to be moved so in the golden years of their life. So it was an extremely, extremely difficult choice for folks to have to make here. And when we think about climate change and how Louisiana is so vulnerable to the effects of climate change, I think something that it, we're starting to talk about now is how many people are going to have to leave their homes, right? And how the communities here, we have so many historic African-American communities, we have a lot of indigenous communities. These are people like that. This is their, like I say, ancestral land and being forced to choose between your home, your culture and your identity. That is such a traumatic decision to have to make, even if you do choose your health in the end. You know, it's not something that maybe many of us can relate to, but we can empathize with that. And we can see that we have layers of displacement in this region, right? That stem back to settler colonialism and the transatlantic slave trade. Can you speak at all also to the like history of like the state's role basically in bringing chemical, like what in the 1950s was going on that Louisiana wanted to incentivize refineries to mm -hmm, oil companies mm -hmm. to come build here? Well, Louisiana has always had a culture of extraction. I mean, it's, yeah, that's, it's, yeah. it's you look at this is where sugar is heavy is refining right it's industrialized and it's always been in its role of exploit people and exploit black people 
exploit land, exploit the river in order to make money for and ship it and then export it, yeah. export it out, export yeah. it out. That's our role is. So everything we have here, mm -hmm. export it out and bring people in here, kidnap them and make them work. So you have that culture, but I know and access to the Mississippi River. Yes, access to the river. Right, control yeah. of the river. Right. Yeah. And that was just the practice of the government. Like, that's just how the state operated generally. State operated. And there's, there was oil that was found. I mean, we have a lot of oil, mm -hmm. especially yeah. like in Lake Charles and in this area. So now you have this, you have this material. Everybody wants the oil. You have the oil company coming and then you have the refining into plastic. So it all just and I can ties it. speak a little bit to that. Oil was discovered in Louisiana in 1901. Mm -hmm. One of the first oil companies after, like stand, like some ones, like Norco was one of the first companies. It used to stand for New Orleans Refinery Company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was the oil company before Shell moved in, mm -hmm. founded in, I believe, 1916. Mm -hmm. So in the 50s, I guess these things ramped up because of World War II. But like Joe said, there always was a system oil. of extraction and exploitation of natural resources and of people and labor here. That like back during the antebellum time, sugar in, was not taxed here locally because they wanted to incentivize planters to make a profit from all the sugar that was produced and so they they took that colonial law and they put that on to oil production as well and that's why we give such massive tax breaks okay, yeah. to these companies here because the state wants them to move here are there any questions before we move on we want to acknowledge that from this audio, we removed a heartbreaking retelling of the deaths of two community members that resulted from the plant's failure to communicate the release of flammable chemicals, which later ignited. We heard this story in silence and returned to the car with a fresh sense of grief. Driving towards Shell's refinery, we turned right at the end of the road and reassembled under the veranda of what appeared to be the remains of a schoolyard. Does anyone know who Mary McLeod Bethune was? This is what the school was named after. It was named after this lady. Miss Mary McLeod Bethune was a civil rights activist. She informed President FDR on issues pertinent to African Americans in the country and sat on his black cabinet. And she was a real advocate for education, particularly the education of women and girls. She was essential to schools all over the country. There's about 16 schools named after her. The most famous is the HBCU Bethune-Cookman, which is in Daytona, Florida. She actually came to have this school dedicated when it was built in 1952. So when the school was built, actually before the school was built, there was no school for the black children of Diamond. They had to be bused very far away because it was during the times of segregation. So when Margie and her sister were born, Margie's dad wanted to make sure that there would be a school for his little girls to attend. And so he had a huge hand in having it built. And Miss Bethune came as an elderly lady for the dedication. That moment was really pivotal in Margie's, I would say, political development. I have here an excerpt from uh, words of Miss Margie. Would someone like to read them? And let's like think about this memory she had of that day. The high school was built right down the street on Washington. I remember they named the school Mary McLeod Bethune. And Miss Bethune herself came for the dedication of the school. I was 11 years old. I heard her speech firsthand. We shook her hand. I asked to see her walking cane. She had a little accent. She said, black boys and black girls don't go to anybody's back door. Black girls and boys like you hold your head high and never fail to fulfill your dreams. Part of her lives in me now. So. Margie Richard took that baton from Miss Bethune 
And she went on to do all sorts of fabulous things, such as standing up to this multi-billion dollar industry. A lot of people told Margie she couldn't do it, but she was really inspired and she went on to do remarkable things herself. Now, I mentioned that Miss Bethune really believed in education, and particularly in the education of women and girls. We know that women and girls do a lot of unrecognized labor that is essential for the functioning of society. So we see this here as well in the amazing activism that's occurring in the river parishes. We work with a lot of female-led organizations, for example, the Descendants Project, Inclusive Louisiana, Rise St. James. These are all helmed by women. And I also like to point out by black women. So some of the most marginalized in our society actually are at the helm of a powerful movement for racial and environmental justice. So something to always acknowledge and remember and to support. Now, little brief recap, we have Shell Chemical here. Belltown used to be there. Shell Chemical moved in. A lot of residents from Belltown moved to Diamond. The older residents of Diamond used to remember how Belltown was. You can see how peaceful and beautiful it is still here, but the residents of Belltown remember when they were young, the land was far more fertile. You could grow anything. They had family gardens of butter beans and okra, squash and tomatoes. They had really productive fig trees, pecans. Uh, folks used to fish in the Mississippi River. You wouldn't do that now. It's a cultural practice that has been really destroyed by these industries moving in. So uh, not only were people getting sick, but also the land is harmed by these industries. So we have to think in terms of the larger web of interdependency and how we are ecologically damaging this planet. So let's talk a little bit now about why these industries moved in. I think y'all already know, we've said it. It's because like you can see here on this map, it's because of all the plantations that existed here. The oil and gas industries wanted the same thing that the plantations had. They wanted access to the river and these long, these long plots of land that went back to the swamps. So we have Cecil Plantation and right next to it is Freetown. Post-Civil War, we had all these plantations with small historic Freetowns popping up in between. And so when these plantations sold their land to big oil, what we had then was these small historic towns sandwiched between these industries and slowly becoming swallowed by them. Belltown no longer exists, right? It has completely been swallowed by Shell. So this is just, and you know, and like they, Diamond, there are still people here, but it's, it, maybe Diamond one day won't exist. They're waiting to take this land. They're trying to do that in Wallace right now, in Joe's community. So we can look at these old maps and see, and prove that these historic towns existed, and we can show that these industries are planning to take the land. That's where the profit is going to come from. Now, I'm gonna talk a little bit about zoning. As we began to discuss zoning, Joe passed around images that Greenfield LLC and the Descendants Project created to depict the potential Wallace Grain Terminal to share at an Army Corps of Engineers meeting. In the Descendants Project's images, the scale of the grain terminal was immediately apparent in contrast to the images created by Greenfield, which completely absented the context of the community and the size of the terminal. We have here some uh, other photos to show you. You can see here, this is how big the grain elevator would be compared to Whitney Plantation, which is right next to it. You can see that. And Joe, if you wanna maybe go further. So I'd like to point out 
that this is a map that was used by Greenfield, a graphic at the Army Corps meeting. And if you look at this infrastructure, if you want to call it that, this is a dock that's going with the grain terminal. So here is a depiction of the grain terminal. Here is Whitney. I mean, Whitney's a fairly si big, si big building, right? So look how it dwarfs that. And also in comparison to the Statue of Liberty and Big Ben. So it gives you like sort of an idea of how big this is. That's just one part of it. There's still the dock part that's around it. But what I think is important and crucial to point out in this map is that where's the community around it? This is a, a map that's given to a mm -hmm. government agency, right? This is going to the Army Corps of Engineers who's in charge of giving the permit. Where's the community at? Where's my home at? Where's the family here? Where is Whitney Plantation? Where's Evergreen Plantation, which is a National Historic Landmark? They're gone. So these are the images that when these people are investing in projects, Greenfield, they're going and saying, look, we're gonna do, this is an empty land. There's nobody here. Why is this project so controversial? And here's a, another one that's from a different vantage. No community, just shows the bridge. But this is the tricks that they're doing when it comes down to zoning, right? And, and making, making sure that they get what they want. Like Joe is saying, this is something that's very common with a lot of permits are, are sent to the EPA or LDQ for approval. These industries show the land completely devoid of life. It's because they see black life as an impediment to profit at this point, and the land's value comes from displacing these people. Our country has, like I said, long history of racially biased land use planning, and mapping tactics have been used throughout its history to geographically isolate and economically concentrate individuals. We can see that with redlining. We also see it with these zoning laws where communities are zoned from residential to industrial or future industrial. That's something that happened in St. James Parish in 2014 because they wanted Formosa to come in. And when that happens, your community cannot build anything that's not related to industry. You can't have a grocery store, you can't have post office, a coffee shop, right? It has to be related to industry. And so when they submit these plans, it sh shows like how huge their disregard is of these communities. But we can use counter mapping tactics to prove that actually communities are here. So we work with Tulane Environmental Law Clinic. They represent us on two of our permit cases. Their team helped us with this rendering to show buildings next to the site. And you can see it's much different from what Greenfield shows and, and also there is um, one of the pictures, it shows a line of trees. Joe then presented us with another image that depicted a row of small trees separating the grain terminal from the community. So this right here is has been used so many times, this little bit of trees to say it's going to block the infrastructure. Like because the trees are going to be there, you won't be able to see it. <laughs> In our last meeting, we asked with trees, they said they're going to use live oak trees. You know how long it takes a live oak tree before it gets big? Decades. 50 years. So anyway, it's, it's just the things that we have to deal with and in relation to zoning and the importance of that. Your zoning map is one of the most important documents municipality have because it's a safety concern too. For our case, we have gone to St. John Parish and tried to get the maps to say, okay, like we're trying to get back to point zero. Where did it all start from? We have four different maps from St. John Parish. All of them are different. Every single one of them are different. The zoning map for the parish was missing. It's gone. It was replaced in 2012. And we are finding out that we think that map was destroyed. intentionally destroyed 
are misplaced. But it also shows you how communities can really be exploited by zoning. Mm -hmm. I also found these blank slate pictures that Greenfield released very interesting because it's like the idea of like the absence of human life on land is like not really new, you know, because it's like a lot of the national parks, for example, you know, indigenous people yeah. are there. And so it's like whenever these national parks were founded, it's like, oh, look, there's just like all this beautiful, well-maintained, wild land with Absolutely. no human life and like by human life obviously the implication there is white human life you know and like all other human life is not in fact human well and also the renderings are not even topographically and correct like where's right. the levee like they don't right. even they actually don't even accurately reflect the geography of the landscape and because they're presenting to people a million miles away the spatial displacement of the people that are receiving this information and who never come down here like it's it's believable like that's what's so upsetting it is, to it me. is it's believable and it's how we have access to that that was at, because we are 106 consultants with the army corps right. which means we can sit in that meeting but if you can imagine we're there fighting back with our own imagery but just imagine if you are a governmental agency and that picture is showing showing in front of you over and over and right. over and over again. You're going to believe like that's what it looks like. Right. That's that's going to just be kind of subliminal messages in your yes, mind. Yeah, yeah. A uh, couple more things I'd like to say. Louisiana has the second highest rate of new cancer rates nationally. That's from a recent study that came out. 85 cancer cases per year are attributable to exposure to severe toxic air pollution. But in during the scene when like the residents of Diamond were fighting for relocation in the late 80s, Shell was one of the top 10 plants nationwide that emitted the most toxic air pollution. In 1998, half of the emissions came from St. Charles Parish. So this small little parish here that we're doing the tour in, it just shows you how polluted it was then, but how things really haven't changed much for the region if we still have second highest cancer rates nationally. You can also notice while we've been here, there's just been a constant noise emanating from this facility, like a slight hissing in the background. My director worked with the folks of Diamond very closely for about 20 years, and she found that there were a lot of individuals who were on antidepressants and medication because of living next to these facilities really took a toll on people. And it has since been proved. I mean, Shell's own internal documents have shown that psychological stress comes from living next to these facilities and these things could lead to depression. And we've had studies have shown that air and water pollution like this is linked, it can alter our brains in ways that increase mental illness. So one other thing I'd like to share to show like how systems connect. We know that toxic exposure in the womb or as a young child can lead to, of course, leukemia and asthma, but it can also lead to learning disabilities. And as we stand here on this empty playground, Back when we used to do air monitoring in this community, we found a developmental toxin called methyl ethyl ketone. This is an extremely toxic chemical. If a baby in the womb or a toddler smells it, it will have an effect on them. And I want us to think about how communities like this are being sacrificed for the economic benefit of the few, for our country and the world. And how Louisiana largely, Southern Louisiana and Southwest, where we're siting a lot of these facilities, they're being turned into sacrifice zones and how your zip code can really, before you're even born, can show what life chances and opportunities you may have. And so uh, I think it's a very poignant image to be here and see this empty playground. 
Have there been studies done on the effect of like noise pollution specifically? Yeah, like I know Shell has, I think Shell has done internal investigations that related to the noise yeah. too. Because it's so disruptive to. And this, like, so we're functioning, but also, like, yeah. This right now, this is what they will say, right? Because this is literally what we're going through with the grain terminal. They'll say this is slightly above a whisper, right? Because it does. It sounds like a whisper, but can it constant, constant whispering, constant hissing all the time? For the noise study that Greenfield submitted, they they said that the levee would block the noise. So now, how does that make sense? The levee not shown it's in the picture. The, the levee is going to block the noise. The levee that doesn't exist here. And yeah. also, sound waves bend. It's not like light. That's light why they call waves, right? Because <laughs> yeah. they wave. But I just even from so we had some um, pile pile driving that was done from this site, and which was moderately small level construction up compared to what they will do is a ton for us but the stress of that the noise the beeping of the trucks back and forth mm. i have to sleep with a mouth guard i had to pay six hundred dollars to get a splint because i started to grind my teeth Oof. so much and it was anxiety caused by or if i hear a truck backing up like a garbage truck and it starts to beep it, it I, my stomach clenches yeah. or i'll get just like nervous and an anxious because of that noise right. It's, and it's a lot of times they'll have sirens and things and they don't tell people why they're, why that siren's going off. So it definitely, it, like, it's, it's scary. In 1998, one of these tanks got overpressurized and the lid flew up here. The, the school was still here and the kids thought it was a UFO. It didn't hurt anyone, but the children thought it was like a UFO coming here because. Touch <laughs> uh oh. Speaking of random. The first. Ominous. Oh, that's scary. I mean, there's also just a smell that's constantly been, like, kind of walking yes, over of here that yeah. wasn't really here before, but it smells a little bit like burning rubber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then just, like, looking at, like, these plumes of smoke that have just been kind of wafting over to our, our little... And then it's, it's hazy, so, like, the clouds, yeah, that, that's why you smell it even more. That is really scary. I haven't heard that before. That's really terrifying. Mm-hmm. But again, you know... I hear it and it's just something that you don't even think about. Yeah, it becomes background noise. Exactly. I'm sure you see the tourists are there and this goes off and they're like, what's going on? Thank you for listening to Tilling the Soil. Tune in next week for the final installment of this series. Thank you for tuning in to Tilling the Soil. For more information on the podcast or Whitney Plantation, go to WhitneyPlantation.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. All the handles can be found in the description. Thanks for listening.